This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Two minutes past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. You may be streaming via rrr.org.au. Anyway, however you're listening, this is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Angeline Charles. How are you, Angeline? I'm good. I'm good. very good. Excellent. Beautiful day, too. It is. Wintry day. And yeah. it's been a bit of an exciting weekend for you and I. <laughs> Having spent all day yesterday together at the Australian Marine Science Association conference workshop for um, new and upcoming scientists. Yeah, telling them all kinds of things. Yeah, career, sort of career advice and, you know, tips and things. And it was really good seeing uh, such a good turnout of really enthusiastic students. And good morning to any of them if you're listening this morning. Yeah, good morning to you. Hope you um, didn't party on too much last night. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits. Thank you, Melissa, for things to do today. Today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thanks as always. Did you hear the LR Fitzgerald little bit around eight o'clock? I, was, I didn't I know. I was. I was confess, dumb. I was probably in the shower about that stage. <laughs> oh, it was it was magic. So thank you very much, Tim. We've got a uh, look. It's ended up becoming a scuba kind of theme show today, which might seem a bit bizarre in the middle of July doing stuff that's all scuba based, but it's just kind of turned out that way, and we're very pleased 
that it has as well. So first up, we've got PT Hirschfield coming into studio. And um, PT is a uh, regular local diving enthusiast, um, but she also shoots underwater footage and puts it up on a Facebook page that she's created called um, Spider Crabs in Melbourne and has a particular love for, um, for the spider crabs, which we've been talking about over the last few weeks. This is this annual amassing of these spider crabs. It's really quite... I don't know if it's formally been classified as a natural phenomenon, but it, I think it really should be. It's its just magic. So every year about this time of the year, there's this spider crab kind of congregation that happens. It's like a spider crab conference and they all just kind of come <laughs> out of apparently nowhere and tend to congregate around the Blair Gowrie Rye part of Port Phillip Bay. So is it a breeding congregation? It's partly that, yeah, and they molt as well. Oh, okay. So we're gonna, I'm going to yep. ask PT about all of this because it's, it's sort of, you know, been, it's a little bit of a, a mystery, a bit of an underwater mystery about how this all happens. And then they have these giant stacks on where they kind of form these massive pyramids. They all just kind of climb on top of each other. Um, hundreds and hundreds of these spider crabs. So it's really quite spectacular. Awesome. So PT's filmed this and um, created this website and it's, it's quite cool. What she captured during the week was a spectacular piece of footage with um, while she was sort of... Um, uh, filming um, a spider crab mid-molt and then, uh, you know, in stealth-like mode, a giant stingray suddenly appears out of nowhere. And uh, so, and she captured all of this on film. And unfortunately, that poor little spider crab ended up becoming, um, becoming. Well, I don't know what time of the day it was. Let's call it lunch for the uh, for the ray. Uh, but that piece of footage has just gone nuts. It's gone viral, and nine MSN have picked it up. So. Very excited that, that PT is coming in and going to talk to us about that and just more generally that, that first-hand experience of, um, of what it's like to be down there and, and watching all these spider crabs doing their thing. We should link this on our Facebook page, I feel, so that people can uh, go and have a look at it. Well, Sounds de- very good. Definitely be doing that. Uh, then, uh, at about 9.30, we're going to be speaking with Albert Lee and Albert is the founder of uh, an organisation called Scuba for Change. He's, it's a world-first enterprise in the scuba diving industry 100% of the profits are made by people going and, and taking part in their scuba dives in the Philippines are all invested straight back into local communities. And the idea of this is to um, to drive positive change, to create legacies and to support local communities. So Albert's going to come in and talk to us about that particular uh, uh venture of his. Um, there's a whole bunch of people involved. It's not just him. I was having a look at their website last night and, and yeah, to, to talk about what diving in the Philippines is like too. Sounds like an awesome project and giving, uh, donating the profits back to the local community is really good. It's yeah. pretty special. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of news to close the show with, Angeline. We do. We'll talk a bit more about AMSA as well because that's happening this coming week. There's a public forum happening tomorrow night that you might be interested in going and having a look at as well. All right, bit of weather. Uh, it is nice out there today. It's going to be mostly sunny, a top of 14, fairly standard winter day, partly cloudy, slight chance of a shower. Winds are up to 25 kilometres an hour to 30 in the late evening and around uh, their northerlies. So uh, it'll be it'll be quite nice out there today. Tomorrow, 13 and shower or two, uh, hovering around you know 13, 14 for the rest of the week. Maybe a little bit of rain on Wednesday, but mostly dry. Uh, the tide times, if you're wanting to do something tidal. <laughs> 
or something that relates to the tides, maybe diving, maybe fishing, maybe just getting out there on the water. Uh, we are heading for a high tide at 2.30. We've already had our low tide of the morning, which was at 7.23, heading for a high tide at Port Phillip Heads at 2.30 this afternoon. And a bit of a surf forecast if you're wanting to uh, head out there and do some surfing. Strong southwesterly groundswell has filled in overnight across Victorian beaches. Fresh north to northwesterly wind is blowing. Water temperatures are 14 degrees, so big surf, particularly down at the island. Clean waves on the reefs for experienced surfers all day. Mornington Peninsula, two and a half metre sets. Wow. And uh, Flinders is offering excellent waves. And then Surf Coast pumping one and a half metre waves on the reefs and beaches for advanced surfers easing through the day. Don't head out there if you're a beginner, I think is the take-home message from that one. Probably a lot better uh, location to go to, potentially, than around New South Wales at the moment. With the, they've got a great white shark that's been oh, yeah. um, around the coast. Have had two people that have had an incident. Um, both are fine, thankfully, uh, but potentially, um, if you want to step into the water there, it might not be a happy ending. No. So, look, I just want to start off with some quick updates. Yes. Uh, one was, you know, when it was Queen's birthday weekend, the other weekend, there's always uh, some honours that are awarded to people. And I've had a look through through them to see, you know, the marine environmental connections. And there was one in Victoria. Uh, and so Jan Oliver, who is the president of the uh, Mornington Environment Association, you might have heard of Jan, she does a lot of campaigning around various um, developments or environmental proposals on the peninsula uh, and she was awarded with a, a medal of the order of australia so an oam acknowledging her work which was uh, for service to conservation and the environment and to the community of mornington peninsula so fantastic congratulations to uh to jan thank you angeline and yes congratulations to jan from us yeah wonder if um, she's listening but it's really good to hear of, of that tireless, often thankless work that's done by people out there. Sure. Coast- appropriately acknowledged. Yeah, I think our coastal champions, I like to call them. And, yeah. and people not necessarily have um, like a media profile or, you know, just us everyday people get out there and... Roll and up the sleeves and get on with it. That's right, yeah. Terrific. Speaking of which... That's right. It's time to nominate for Victoria's uh, Coastal Awards of Excellence. One of my favourite times of the year. Um, nominations are open, or they're open to make a nomination at the moment, till Sunday the 2nd of August. So you've got a little bit of time to think about what project or people you might like to nominate. Now, these awards are held by the Victorian Coastal Council uh, annually. I think, uh, I'm not sure when they started, but they've been around for quite some time. Yeah, we got one back in 2004, I think it was, um, because they had a media section back then. Yes. And then they kind of closed down the media section after that. <laughs> yeah. I think because they figured, you know, maybe no we should having we it. Could re-lo- we could lobby for it to be reopened <laughs> because it looks a bit lonely out there in the corridor on its own. Uh, and so there's a couple of categories, speaking of categories, Natural Environment, Education, Planning and Management, Design and Building, Community Engagement and Outstanding Individual Achievement. So, yeah, if you think of someone or a project that you know, nominate because uh, it's always important to have a good field of uh, projects to select from and also to have the people who are our coastal champions to have their work acknowledged. So and it's, a, it's a great night. So, And I think, um, can you go through those categories again because just, just think about them and listen to them because you've probably heard at least one or two or probably many people who would qualify uh, just by listening to this program for each one of these categories. Categories. Uh, natural environment was mm-hmm. the first one, education, planning and management, 
design and building, community engagement and outstanding individual achievement. Fantastic. Yeah, I've definitely got a, a few up my sleeve that I'm going to nominate. I always like to put one in um, because Great. it is. I think it's really important that um, particularly people at the everyday level, less so, like I, I remember going to the United Nations Environment Awards and all these big businesses were winning and I thought, you know, that's that's it's really hard for individuals to or small community groups to compete at that level. So that's mm. why I think these rewards are important because um, they do acknowledge those people. So, yeah, you've got till the 2nd of August. Excellent. Uh, and just Get they've busy. got a website which is www.vcc.vic.gov.au. Uh, Thank you, Angeline. We're going to put a link to that on our Facebook page. So we will indeed. You can check that out for yourself. And, yeah, look, if you know someone who fits any of those categories, just nominate them. Nominate Absolutely. Them. Yeah, they deserve to be nominated. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been bringing you up to date about the visually spectacular and intriguing annual amassing of the spider crabs in Port Phillip Bay. Our next guest is a local underwater photographer and diving enthusiast. She gets out there as often as she can to be part of the action and during the week shot some sensational footage of not only the spectacular crustacean stacks on, but an opportunistic giant stingray honing in on what was really a giant crabby smorgasbord. She's here to share her experiences with all of us. It's with great pleasure we welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R, P.T. Hirschfield. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me in. Thanks so much for coming in. It's great to meet you in person, the, the person behind the camera that has just shot this great footage. Yeah. Thought might, um, just tell us a bit about yourself. We didn't really know about you personally until this footage went viral this week and um, we've uh, become familiar recently with some of the footage that you've posted on Facebook. Let's let's just talk about the spider crabs to start with. What what is it about them that has you fascinated? And and it's it's kind of this uh, great effect that it's had on everybody else as well. I think the fact that they just come in en masse and they can actually be a little bit unpredictable. For many years we thought we would see 15,000, 20,000 crabs all coming in simultaneously to molt their old shells that they've outgrown at Rye Pier, but this year has been a bit different. So uh, it feels a bit, with all scuba diving, it feels a bit like a treasure hunter where you're going out to look for a certain thing and sometimes nature will confound you and sometimes it will completely surpass your expectations. And certainly this season has been a little bit different to what we've um, expected and experienced in the past, where a few months ago I filmed, if, if you Google spider crab pyramid, there's a, a video on YouTube that went far and wide because people were just so fascinated to see a thousand crabs stacked taller than I am, not that I'm very tall, and, um, you know, just wondering what on earth are they doing when they're stacking. They didn't seem to be molting, but they just seemed to be aggregating for safety and numbers and perhaps a bit of a reconnaissance mission about how they would come in um, to the pier and then they disappeared again. And we thought, well, where are they going? So getting in the water as often as we can and for me personally, having dived with the spider crabs for five years, I had never yet witnessed with my own eyes a molt of one, in, one of them coming out of their shell. And it can take 20 minutes for a molt to take place. So um, I was really excited this year to get in the water as often as possible. Um, my situation has changed a bit. I've gone from having a very conventional sort of um, job to someone who has some pretty major health issues, which you'll find out about if you go onto my blog, pinktankscuba.com. But it's actually been a blessing in disguise because it's freed me up to be in the water a lot. So I've been out there chasing the spider crabs, um, you know, maybe four days a week, and finally, for the first time, got to witness and film 
crabs not only molting out of their shell, which I've put some time-lapse video up of, but also the massive stingrays coming in. And I'm sure you'll like this given the name of the show, but um, one of the things that this video has been promoted as is the, the stingray is slurping up the spider crab like spaghetti marinara. Yeah, I did <laughs> and it, see that. It really is like that. And to witness it with your own eyes is just mind-blowing. But hopefully the video that I've captured, and I've done a bit of a time-lapse on it, um, gives a, a real indication of what it was like. And, and it's definitely an intense and fascinating experience. Was that the first time that you'd seen that actually happening? Or had you seen it before and then thought, I've really got to get this on camera? No, it's always been my goal in the last five years of going out because when they do come in totally en masse, um, it's you know, it's harder to locate the individuals that are in their varying stages of moth. And and that's the reason they come in. They don't want to be detected. They don't want to be that vulnerable and that conspicuous because when the crabs come out of their hard shell, they're, they're much larger, but they're very soft. And so that's why the predators come in and they'll, they'll just eat them so easily. And to me, it's been amazing. And I've actually got a lot more footage that I haven't yet shared. That video footage that on YouTube is called Malt Hard Die Harder um, <laughs> is is actually um, just one of seven malts that that I was able to film, but that was the very first one, mm. and I was really invested watching that crab. It's it's like watching them being born. The the reality is it's watching an adult crab being born because that crab has already had quite a life in its its smaller shell. But you, you become a little bit emotionally attached to watching it come out of this smaller shell over this. 20 minute period and I was so excited because it ha- it was the first one that I'd ever witnessed and I thought I'm going to be able to get the whole malt and then I actually felt as I was there and the tensions rising yes he's going to get out of the shell I felt this big nudge against my arm that I was trying to keep very still as I was filming and I look over and eyeball to eyeball the biggest of all the stingrays that was patrolling the area was pushing my arm telling me to get out of the way because it had its eye on the crab too (laughs) so you can imagine I was excited to be witnessing it I I was cheering the crab on and yet there's a stingray which in nature that's that's what they do they Mm. eat soft-shelled crabs I know a lot of humans do as well I choose not to but um, you know it was moving me out of the way and my initial reaction was no I want this little one to get out of the shell so I actually pushed the nose of the massive smooth ray back and it pushed against my arm again and I thought I'm not going to put up a fight on this one so (laughs) reluctantly I repositioned myself and my camera and managed to shoot some fairly dramatic footage of what happened to that poor crab which wasn't exactly what I'd anticipated. Now just for the listeners spiders spider crabs have sort of a relatively small body and quite really long legs how do they go getting their legs out of that shell? It's a really slow and um, painful and I think exhausting process for them you know initially what they do and I I still want to get footage my bucket list footage now is to actually get the eyes coming out of the old shell because you know it's it's just too fascinating for words and and I haven't filmed that perspective of it but um, they they 
get their heads out first and then they draw their legs out very slowly. I did actually see one spider crab whose leg was stuck and I know, you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether we intervene or whether we just sit back and watch people but this one was so stuck and it was just one leg and it, for the life of it couldn't get that last leg out. So I will confess to perhaps giving it the tiniest little bit of help to remove that last bit of its leg but, you know, then they sit there absolutely exhausted for, you know, a, a, a matter of minutes before they can even start to flex those new soft legs. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating to watch that entire process and to think they get so close to that new life of theirs, but then it all begins again when they have to run this gauntlet of huge stingrays that are out to, to feast on them and what we found in Blegauri this time is that a lot of them once they've they've got their strength once they've found their feet so to speak they've been climbing the pylons and going up onto the sponge wall where you know hundreds and hundreds of soft shell crabs are sitting up there waiting for their shells to harden which takes a few days before they'll then sneak down and try and sneak past all of the the smooth rays back out into Port Phillip Bay where what we understand is that they they live much more solitary lives they've only really aggregated together for the safety in numbers while they're shedding those old shells. I think it's one of the most fascinating things about these spider crabs is that they it's this annual amassing and what triggers it and the fact that we don't know and I don't I'm interested in your opinion on this is whether you because you do a lot of diving you'd see a lot of really cool things underwater that this has to be considered to be a natural phenomenon in terms of how it actually happens and there would have to be a whole range of research projects that you think could go into this to actually try to understand what it is that's going on is it a chemical trigger is it the the bay temperature is there you know is there something else that that triggers this because it's pretty regular isn't it in terms of how often this happens and when it happens each year yeah in in terms of the factors that are stimulating this aggregation we do notice that um, early in the year they start to have these I would have called them pre-migrations or pre-aggregations where they they sort of come in in dribs and drabs and then they disappear again and when the water temperature drops to about 12 degrees that's pretty much when all of our radars go off and say they shouldn't be too far away and inevitably they do start coming in to molt around that time Um, so in terms of the number of research projects that could be going on, I think that would be the most fascinating formal research to take place. But as far as we can tell, no one is actually doing it. Yeah. And it's it's unique in all the world, nowhere else but in Australia, that we are aware of, do they have these mass aggregations of spider crabs for molting purposes. We understand that once um, that, that females can only mate after they've molted. So we assume then that once they, they've molted, they head back out into the bay they pair up and and then the mating takes place but in the absence of all of the formal research um, I've set up a Facebook page called Spider Crabs Melbourne and basically the objective of that is for everyone who's out there diving with them photographing them um, recording the footage and um, having the observational research come together collaboratively so that from year to year we can start tracking them um, and their behaviours and seeing what's typical, seeing if anything's typical or if it's all completely atypical because this year was certainly not what we expected to happen. But um, where where the formal funding isn't taking place, we're, we're doing it on a very ground or let's say sand level of research. <laughs> and you're collecting data. This is the great thing. 
we talk a lot about citizen science, particularly on this show, which is basically saying you don't need to go out there and have a have a, have a qualification, a university qualification to contribute to the world of science. And this is a really great example of that, I think. The fact that particularly with you and a whole lot of other divers that are out there multiple times a week taking all this footage, what you're doing is collecting data. And uh, and hopefully in terms of you know getting to that next level of understanding about what, what the triggers are for the spider crabs, that will set something off hopefully yeah and and i'm hoping that it inspires some phd research students in marine biology who all have to choose their as far as i understand their their focus animal that they're looking at um this would be a very challenging one but i think it would be an incredibly rewarding one for for some people to start doing some more um formalized research but in the interim we're having a lot of fun collecting the data ourselves and sharing that and raising profile you may have seen the photos um in the herald sun this week of the invasion of the spider crabs um i actually took three of those photos they weren't credited to me they were credited to the person who took the the fourth photo um but you know they were mine yes and we we're actually raising the profile of what we have in the bay you know there are people who um, run shops down at Rye and Blairgowrie and they're right across the road from the piers there are there are school children who pass those piers every day but they are very often very unaware of how incredibly rich and diverse the life is under those piers and the responsibility that we all have in terms of understanding and taking care of what we should be custodians of even as land dwellers who never go under a pier we have an impact on what's happening with those animals and ecosystems in the water can you so you were saying before that they climb up on the pier pylons can you see them from the pier when you cl- when they're climbing up on the pylons, usually it's under the the actual pier itself. Yep. When the crabs um, amass in the shallows, it's very easy to just look off the the pier, and when the water's clear, you'll you'll see thousands of crabs yep. when they come in on on those sorts of numbers. Um, so it is possible. It's certainly, lots of snorkelers were getting in and having a look as well. Great. So you don't need to have a tank. You don't need to have a scuba qualification. No. You do need to be able to stand some quite cold water. It's been <laughs> very cold and when I was filming on Tuesday that that particular video that's just gone viral with the the crab molting and the stingray um, I was in the water for 137 minutes at 10 degrees wow it's getting cold and I don't own a dry suit <laughs> so you, you have that ice cream headache when you first hit the water and then everything goes numb basically I certainly had it by the end of the dive <laughs> yeah. but you can't and there's no point waiting for summer till the water warms up because the crabs won't be around so. that's it they dictate and if we're keen enough we'll go in and um, see what they're up to yeah yeah Angela? so do you think it's the temperature that triggers them that that might be the optimal time for them to harden their shells afterwards I, I think potentially, yeah. Why why the drop in water temperature um, is what it is. Some people said, you know, maybe they they huddle together for warmth, but they're they're, <laughs> no. they're cold blooded animals, yeah. so that's that's not a factor for them. No. Um, there were theories about whether or not um, the full moon. You know, there there are a few people saying that you know four days before a full moon, because we've witnessed that in the past, that must be the trigger. Um, and yet that didn't prove to be the case this year. But the consistent factor has been that that drop in water temperature um, so um, and and in reality there there are aggregations of crabs beyond rye and beyond Blair Gowrie you know we hear about aggregations at St Leonard's so over on the other side um, so uh, San Remo I think potentially have had some sightings at different times so um, 
we can only determine what the factors are in the areas that we are studying most closely but through this spider crabs melbourne page we are able to um, start collating that information that goes more broadly across the aggregation sites and possibly across different times of the year as well now we uh, some of the discussion on your um, facebook page has been around protection of the crabs or not protection of the crabs and that's something next week on the program we've got um, chris smythe from the victoria national parks association coming in talking about uh, whether the crabs are protected, whether they're not. It looks to me, because I had a bit of a look at the the, um, legislation around this, that they're not, they fall under that general category of, um, you know, you can can technically go, if you have um, just a recreational fishing licence, you can go and take up to 30 crabs per day. I don't know why you'd want to. But there's this issue around legislative protection and some people just say, well, if it's there and I can take it, then I will, regardless of you know, all kinds of other issues. Do you have a a view on this? Well, firstly, with regards to the collection of the crabs, um, by all accounts, they taste terrible and they would be considered inedible. So that in itself um, should be an indication to people that um, they're probably not something that you want to be collecting. Plus, they are so cute when you get to know them. Why would you eat them? But that's just me. Um, (laughs) So um, I, I think this is a discussion that needs to take place. I think as we start to raise awareness of the crabs amongst the community and there is a certain community that's always been aware of them but now that we're really trying to be proactive in making the broader community aware of them I think it's really important that we start to look at um, you know what is our responsibility towards them what is responsible uh, human management of the underwater ecological system that's there and the fact that we haven't seen the kinds of numbers this year that we've seen in the past might trigger us to think well is is there a, a dramatic change in population numbers that needs to somehow be tracked which might you know be basis for an argument for the protection of the species if we see that their numbers are declining rapidly Mm. but how do we know that unless we do broader research on whether it's smaller numbers or whether they just didn't come in the way we expected this year and they all still exist further out. Mm. So I, I just love that the discussions are taking place, that they're getting you know, some media attention at the moment and that people are really starting to value because, as you said right at the start, you know, this is unique in all the world. So it needs to be appreciated, respected and, in my opinion, protected. One last question for you. I wanted to talk um, very, uh, about your blog yes so pink tank tell us about pink tank okay so pinktankscuba.com is my personal blog of all my scuba versus tumor underwater dive adventures so um i'm a diver who has done over 350 dives and all but one of those was done as a cancer patient and that was my very first discover scuba up on the great barrier reef nobody told me you could dive in melbourne so it was 10 years that i will never get back that i didn't dive until i did my second dive and um I dive because it is an incredible experience, but also because my oncologists have told me I don't
don't have an awful lot of time left. I've finished palliative radiation and as a cancer patient, they've said to me, listen, it's all about your quality of life. Do whatever makes you happy. And what makes me happy is the ocean and sharing that love of the ocean and that positive approach that people can have regardless of what they're dealing with in their lives to actually make the most of the time that we have rather than to lament the time that we don't. Mm. And so for me, if an oncologist says to you, you've got six to 12 months to live, which is exactly what they said to me in September of last year, to me, that's a one size fits all prognosis that doesn't take into account your approach to life, your support network, your belief systems, and all of the other variables, you know, how you treat your body. And so for me, whatever time I have left, I'm going to celebrate it and I'm going to share the ocean through that blog. So I have a Pink Tank Scuba Facebook page that people are welcome to follow and the Pink Tank Scuba blog where I share loads of underwater videos, everything from my bucket list adventures, great white sharks, right down to nudibranchs, which are prolific at the same pier we were just talking about, mm. Blairgowry Pier. And everything in between. So I pretty much, um, I'm wearing a, a, a jumper at the moment that says, live each day as though you might dive. If I live each day as though I might die, that will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'll sit in a corner, curl up, and it's going to hit in six to 12 months as predicted but I think if we've got a really positive attitude and we um, really enjoy what we're doing and we care about the world around us and the people and the creatures in the world around us then that means better quality of life for all and I'm just so passionate about exciting uh, about share and excited about sharing that so um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share all of that with you today and in the future through the blog and the Facebook page fantastic so pinktankscuba.com that's it you can go and check that out for yourself. Are you heading out there to get busy with the spideys today? Uh, probably not today. I think they've given me the day off today to come <laughs> in and speak to you. <laughs> Good to hear. But then back out there tomorrow. Hopefully, yes. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank PT. you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to put a link to um, that spectacular footage and uh, and to your blog as well and your website, pinktankscuba.com. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been great. You are listening to Radio Marinara. Now, Scuba for Change is a unique world-first social enterprise in the scuba diving industry. In addition to providing first-hand local knowledge about the local ecology to divers who take part in this program, 100% of profits are invested back into local communities in the Philippines to drive positive and lasting environmental and social leg legacies. It's with great pleasure now that we welcome founder and board member from Scuba for Change, Albert Lee, to Radio Marinara, and also to talk about diving in the Philippines, which is a bit of a tempting option in the middle of a Melbourne winter. Good morning, Albert. Good morning, guys. Thanks, thanks for having me. We've just been speaking about diving in Melbourne in winter where the te water temperature is 10 degrees. I gather it's um, not quite the same story in the Philippines. Well, I must admit I'm a bit of a fair weather diver, so uh, I have a 7mm wetsuit, but I don't think I've ever used it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a 7mm wetsuit too and I haven't used it in over 10 years. <laughs> I'm going to remedy that at some point. Um, let's talk about scuba for change. So I gave a little bit of a summary of what you are. Tell us in a bit more depth, um, what, what is scuba for change? What do you do? Sure. So Scuba for Change is a social enterprise founded right here in Melbourne. And uh, in February this year, we started our first operations in the Philippines in a lovely little spot called Porto Galera. Now, whilst we operate like any other dive shop on this planet, you know, that is, we offer fun dives, course dives, and we sell equipment, the important thing is what we're, why we're different and why we're unique is 100% of our profits that we make 
can we generate are reinvested back into communities such as the Philippines to create positive and lasting legacies. So to give you a bit more flavour of what we do, so 50% of the profits we generate will be donated to an organisation in the Philippines called the Stairway Foundation. They've been operating for, in the Philippines for more than 20, 25 years and they help primarily the marginalised kids, uh, uh, street kids in Manila and also the indigenous kids who, interestingly enough, they're also being marginalised by their own people. So the programs that we fund are typically to help stop uh, child exploitation and also to help promote children's rights. Um, on top of that, we will fund um, business grants, provide business grants to locals so they can start their own businesses. Um, so I guess they too they can, they can pursue, pursue their own hopes and own dreams. 10% uh, of our profits will go towards our staff in the, in the form of profit share. It's our way to help promote a more equitable wage distribution, uh, certainly for the employees that works for us. And 40% of the remaining earnings are retained earnings. So that becomes our, our war chest to fund future growth and expansions. Because, you know, if any of us, any of the listeners have been involved with not-for-profits or social enterprises, raising money is not an easy thing. No, it's certainly not. And I'm sure that a lot of the people listening now, will that will resonate with them very deeply. And it is a really hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that means we don't have to see, you know, social investors each year. And even though our first two or three operations will be funded by social investors and we're very blessed to have those support um, but yeah that means that going forward we can be self-sufficient. So where did the idea come from Albert? How? What was the, the real seed to this? I guess the journey actually started way back in 2004 and Kath was talking about Cambodia and that's where the journey started really. Um, so my wife and I were travelling through to Cambodia as tourists and um, personally I saw something that really upset me um, seeing the kids being exploited um, as beggars and as prostitutes. I'm not sure it was still happening there. Um, and I remember being very, very angry about the situation. Although I was in my sort of mid-late 20s, I really didn't know what I could have done about it or how it could be part of the solution. But anyway, um, on the same trip, I was very lucky to have met a couple of local restaurateurs uh, who ran tiny little restaurants for profit. But they took used some of their profits and it took kids off the streets you know gave them food shelter and education and importantly they taught them a trade or a skill you know where does working in the kitchen learning to be a waiter or be part of the the band that's performing in the restaurant it didn't really matter because those actions broke the cycle of exploitation that those kids were being ex exposed to i remember being th thinking wow what a what a wonderful idea because in 2004 i think the concept of social enterprises probably wasn't that as prevalent as it is today Anyway, and, and cut a long story short, and over time, my passion for scuba diving grew. I used to be very much afraid of the ocean, you wouldn't believe it or not. My, mm. my wife can verify this. And she actually showed Jaws, put Jaws on TV the night before I had my first scuba dive. <laughs> <laughs> How incredibly supportive of her. <laughs> no, she has a wonderful sense of humour, my wife, Rachel. But um, no, so, and you know, with scuba divers, we, we spend a bit of time above water uh, during service intervals. And I like to spend time talking to local dive staff and dive guides to see, you know, how they are, who they are, where they come from. And um, I got to learn a couple of things. Um, firstly is, and the locals living in developing nations, those dive guides and dive staff, typically they have little or no opportunities to progress within the diving industry. Two reasons. One is because typically a dive shop's owned by mums and dads. Um, and it's very rarely that, you know, uh, a sole pro proprietor would hand over the keys to someone to run the dive shops. And even if they do, the dive staff are typically not uh, well trained or in terms of scuba diving, so they're typically probably not an instructor or not 
educated to a level where they can run a business. Um, so, you know, I became dive master a couple of years ago, and I know the costs associated with that. And I earn an Australian wage. That's for me. That's okay. I can handle that. But a local, if they have to get to an instructor level, they might not eat for a year or two. And that's not acceptable, and that's not they, they can't do that. So, for me, one one about two years ago, I came back uh, from another dive trip. I was sitting on a plane, sitting next to my wife Rachel, and she knew noticed I was more fidgety than usual, and always fidgeting. Um, and um, because in my head, all these light bulbs are going off, thinking, well, why can't we use scuba diving as a, a vehicle uh, to help create positive change? And so, literally, I was on holidays. I didn't have pen and paper on me. I borrowed a pen from the uh, air host. Host, hostess, I shouldn't say that, that's probably not very politically correct, uh, 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 Air Stewart, and I grabbed a sick bag in front of the... Uh, <laughs> so that's I'll, what you use them for. That's right, that's right. And I'll start scribbling down what, I guess now today, uh, the, the first step or first framework of Scuba for Change. Fantastic. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the area where you've set these uh, dives up or the, the um, places yep. where you can dive. So it's it's in the Philippines, but uh, Puerto Galera, is that how you pronounce it? Yep. yep. So Puerto Galera literally means it's the port of galleons. So when okay. the, the Spanish used to go there, there's a lot of galleons pull up into this port. It's a beautiful bay. Where we establish ourselves, we're part of a beautiful resort called Sunset Resort. Uh, it's operated by a local Filipina, Lexi, and Mark, so her Australian partner. Great, great people. And, and the resort is actually a very chic, modern resort. Um, I would say a step above most resorts in the Philippines. And our little uh, our operations within the resort, it's on a private beach, Anyuan Beach, and the house reef there is magnificent. Um, very blessed to have a fantastic ambassador in Lucas Hanley. He's a filmmaker, marine biologist. In fact, we are putting out a, a new promotional video that Lucas did for us for Pro Bono. He told me that uh, he spotted nine different species of uh, clownfish. We know that turtles come and lay eggs on that beach every year. There's heaps of macro life uh, on that house reef that we have, it's, we call our own. But around the area, there are you know more advanced dives around Verde Island or the canyons and, and machine wash, I think it's called. Um, so, but you see the big pelagic, bigger tuna, jackfish around there. But there are lovely, lovely little drift dives there as well. Um, and for the technical divers, the tech divers, there is within our, from our beach, there's two tech dive sites within five minute boat ride. Boat ride. So we have we place ourselves in a beautiful little spot. Yeah. So you mentioned that um, that there is a resort that is kind of tied up. Is this so? It's not like you have to go and find somewhere to stay and and all this sort of stuff. It, it's all kind of part of a package. Absolutely. So yep. uh, yeah, we have a package deal that we offer to our divers. Okay. And you mentioned um, some of the, the diving and what that's like. Angeline? Oh, Albert, I just wanted to comment when you were talking earlier about um, the the impoverished conditions that people might live in in the Philippines. And it's it's very hard in Australia. Like, it's for us, we forget um, how difficult people in other parts of the world are doing it. And, and even here, you know, people can have their own financial troubles. But really, we're very well off. Um, and it's great. This is like sounds like a great program for the way for us to share our wealth with them and and help support those people. So, yeah, it's it just sounds amazing. Yeah, I guess one of the things we don't realise how lucky we are until we travel to those countries. And I guess um, just through starting up Scoop of a Change, I did some research around the concept of tourism leakage, and it's it's astounding that for some nations and look, there's plethora of studies out there. Right? I'm just picking one I've, I read recently. They're up to 85 cents in a dollar that we spend as tourists in a developing country gets leaked out of that nation through repatriation of profits or however. So the locals are not getting the benefits of our tourism dollars. So our model is a testbed and hopefully it will inspire other organisations to do something similar. I don't expect everyone to give 100% of the profits away, but what about 10%, 15%? I think this will be a 
our way forward. Yeah, and drive that positive change. Um, so we're talking about this as being a world first uh, in terms of money generated going back into the local communities. And um, you mentioned one of your ambassadors. You've got another one, like a Formula Racing car driver. How did that come about? So Chris oh. Pither, he's a V8 race car driver. Right. Uh, so I don't know. Race cars are all the same to me. <laughs> me too. I'm not a, I'm not a, not a motorsports. They fan. go round and round really fast. Other than that, it's all semantics. Exactly. Crazy <laughs> people, really. Uh, but no, I, I met Chris through a good mate of mine, uh, Darren Park. He actually was. He gave us the seed funding to start. And Darren runs a race team, Icebreak Race Team. And this is why I think scuba for change is not just about scuba diving. I like to talk about that because we're here to create positive and lasting legacies for people in need. And Chris, um, he's on, came on board because he has a very similar philosophy. He wants to give help people without expecting anything back. Mm. And when Chris and I talk, talked about our personal stories, I just thought that the fit was there and uh, as absolutely he's a great ambassador for us. And at fundraising time, he provides great prices for us as well. So... Um, yeah, no, Chris has been a fantastic ambassador. Fantastic. Um, so just to uh, to give this a plug again, so uh, your website, because it's a great website, you can look through it in, in quite detail. Yeah, so scubaforchange.com. Um, and on the panel, if you want to go to our Porto Glero website, um, you can also click uh, on the side, you can see our dive shop and dive dive uh, prices but call to action if the divers come dive with us if you don't dive you can snorkel in our house reef if you don't like the water stay at our resort because um, we get a commission as well if we bring guests there so <laughs> fantastic <laughs> all right so we'll put that link to our facebook page as well scubaforchange.com thanks so much albert Thank you. oh one last question is you heading out are you planning on expanding beyond where you're currently at at the moment absolutely so uh, our, our model is going to be a scalable model so we want to expand to other locations within the philippines but also ultimately get into other developing nations and embed exactly the same model. Fantastic. So uh, thank you. We've been speaking with Albert Lee for, about Scuba for Change and we will put a link to, uh, to uh, Scuba for Change website on our Facebook page. A couple of uh, bit of news snippets to uh, to head out on. One I wanted just to give a really quick plug um, for this public forum taking place tomorrow evening. Uh, it's part of the Australian Marine Sciences Association's gathering down at Geelong. Angeline, we mentioned at the start of the show, you and I were down there all day yesterday. It's quite cool as you drive into Geelong. I don't know if you noticed the massive big banner up on the on one of the um, pathways that you walk over. Oh, I didn't. I, I took the ring road around. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> anyway, this is uh, we, we gave this a big plug last week. The details are already up on our Facebook page if you want to look them up. Estuaries to Oceans, what are the issues? In fact, Estuaries to Oceans is the theme of the entire conference. Most of the conference is closed to um, people who are actually registered to go, so it's uh, lots of academics and students. But there is a public event taking place tomorrow night. It's at Costa Hall, Deakin University, 1 Geringap Street, Geelong. It's Gering, just Geringap. Geringap. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> Like I grew up in Geelong. I know it's it's a funny street, but it's Jeringham. Jeringham, thank you. <laughs> Actually, the little the, the Google Maps voice. I don't know, I can't even remember how she pronounced that. It was completely. <laughs> I don't know. She kind of had a crack at it. Got it even worse than me. Um, a whole lineup of people who've flown in from all over the country. So Professor Emma Johnston from University of New South Wales, um, Dr Tim O'Hara from uh, Museum Victoria, Emma Jackson from uh, Central Queensland University, and Beth Fulton and Peter Nichols from CSIRO, MC and moderated by Anthony Box who you might know from Radio Marinara. You could indeed. Yeah. So uh, there's um, a marine photography exhibition as well. I actually saw some of that being put up yesterday, the algae. Did you see yeah, some I of did. that it algae? Absolutely beautiful. So that's on the exhibitions from 6 till 7 in the Costa Hall foyer and then the forum's on at 7 o'clock. So if you want some more information, just check out our Facebook page. So the public can go along and ask any sort of questions they have about the marine and coast and, you know, about 
even the super troll or anything they want to put forward. I think so. Yeah, I think that's the idea. Excellent. You do have to pay to go. Actually, I should mention that it's not a free event. It's public, but it's not free. Um, so you can pay at the door. I think it's ten dollars. It's not very much. Sounds great. Go along. Uh, a couple of quick ones to finish on. You've got some news there. Well, I did. I'm, I'm sure some listeners might have heard this this week, but BP's agreed to play a, a pay a claim over the 2010 Gulf of Mexico oil spill. It's one of the uh, largest settlements in American history. So it was 18.7 billion US, uh, and I think BP came to the to the conclusion in the end that they didn't want to spend the next 20 years in the courts as they they had over as had occurred over other uh, large oil spills in the world, and they decided they just it was cheaper and easier to just pay it out and be done with it. Uh, so that's that's um, going to take about 18 years, with an 18-year payment plan. Um, wow. And the, I know, it's, a, it's an enormous figure, isn't it? Uh, but it also includes a further $9.3 billion which is paid to the US and Gulf Coast states uh, for, for 15 years of natural resource damages. Uh, so the funds will go towards repairing the damages. And they'll also set aside $304 million to cover any unforeseen damages. I might also point out that they are the biggest acreage holder in the Gulf uh, and they've got actually 10 rigs going in the Gulf. Wow. So uh, doing exploration and extraction. So even though, you know, that big event had occurred, they still have a very major presence there. So let's hope it doesn't happen again. That's right. And that money goes to uh, to good use. Thanks, Angeline. Thank you, Bronner. Thank you, Kath. Thank you, Kent. He's been uh, out in the green room taking calls and he'll, uh, Kent is our, our wonderful uh, Radio Marinara pod father. He'll have this show up as a podcast uh, in the next few hours. Thank you also very much to our guests, to uh, Albert Lee from Scuba for Change and PT Hirschfield. And um, as we said, we'll put those links up to our Facebook page if you want to check out uh, some of the wonderful work that they do. Next week's program, Dr Beach will be in the house. Chris Smart's coming in from the Victoria National Parks Association. We might catch up with Terry Allen about her uh, diving adventures in New Zealand. In the meantime, stay tuned for Radiotherapy and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.